Well, it's great to be with all of you on this uh, last Sunday of August. Cold front's coming. <laughs> Praise the Lord. High of 97. So good. Before we open the text, uh, let me share a quick church update. As some of you know, the end of August marks the end of our budget year. And uh, right now we have a little bit over a million dollars to go to be fully funded so that we can head into this next, uh, into this fall with, with momentum. And I want to be as clear as possible. It's not just a few like, you know, big gifts, uh, but so many who give sacrificially. I thought this was encouraging. This past year, 297 people have given to our church for the first time. So someone who's either started attending or gotten involved and have said, I want to be a part of what God is doing here. Mostly what we want to say is thank you. Because of you, we are able to reach so many kids and students with the hope of Jesus. Because of you, this hope extends beyond here to places like Kenya, where 225 kids are able to go to school and have a nutritious meal every day. Because of you, we can encourage and support Christians facing persecution in places like Iran. Because of you, we're now reaching into new, new neighborhoods here in Dallas, Oak Cliff, Lake Highlands, Old East Dallas. Because of you, people are finding healing and hope through our counseling program right here on our campus. You are a generous church and we worship a generous God. So that's all I'm gonna say about that. I wanna pray for us and then we'll open up God's word. Holy Spirit, we thank you for all you're doing in and through this church. And we pray now that you would help us to be not just hearers of your word, but that we would put into practice what we learned from you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Jesus did not call the world to go to church. He called the church to go out into the world. Go and make disciples, he said, to the ends of the earth, to whatever lengths you can. And I'm grateful that, that it's happening. One life, one story, one interaction at a time. It's happening in and through this church. It's certainly happening in places around the world where people are hearing the story of Jesus for the first time. And we want to be connected and in friendship with and learning from churches in the majority world. By the way, uh, that's one of the greatest gifts we have as a church is that right here on University Boulevard in our midst, our all nations community and our Mandarin congregations, which really live and breathe this willing to go to great lengths kind of love and how they reach people for Jesus. And it's a gift to our church. And I say all that as kind of an encouraging backdrop to what I'm about to share. A few weeks ago, I was speaking at one of our sister churches down in Houston, and uh, during the Q&A time, I was asked a question. This guy said, why don't we see more baptisms in our churches? And he went on. He said, shouldn't we be the slightest bit curious or even upset that we're not seeing more people coming to Jesus and getting baptized in our midst? So clearly this was not one of those audience plant, like we're going to give the guest speaker a softball kind of question. And he kept going with his multiple questions veiled as one question. He said, he said, Brian, how many people do you think a church like ours, this was a church similar in size to Highland Park, how many baptisms do you think we should have or see in a given year? And not babies, as much as we celebrate that, but someone who's made a decision to follow Jesus. 
And I'll tell you, I have been haunted by that question. So anybody want to know the answer? Last year, our church baptized 28 people, 28 new followers of Jesus, a church of about 5,000, little under uh, half of that here on a given weekend, thousands more watching online. We are in the heart of a growing city, millions of people. And last year we baptized 28 adults. I shared this with our preaching cohort earlier this week and somebody actually said, wow, that's way better than I thought it would be. (laughs) Which I didn't know if I was supposed to feel good about that comment or not. Now, please hear me say, this is not meant to be a guilt trip. This is not, uh, you better get out there and start telling people about Jesus at Starbucks. Like, you think that mocha's hot? It's not as hot as hell. Hi, my name's Nance. It's great to meet you. Would you like to go to church? Okay, please don't do that. Don't tell them you're from Highland Park Press if you do. And you know, when the guy asked me the question, there, there was a part of me, there was this, this, like this twinge of defensiveness. And I found myself coming up with all kinds of yeah buts. Yeah, but our tradition in our tradition, we baptize babies. And theologically, we're not allowed to baptize someone who maybe they got sprinkled as an infant and maybe that was the last time they ever stepped foot in a church, but then somebody invited them to church and they met Jesus and they wanted to be baptized. And we're like, well, we'd love to do that, but we can't because then we get in trouble with the theology task force of the denomination and I might be put on probation. Yeah, but look at all the good that we're doing and the impact in our city and partnerships with these unbelievably effective ministries of compassion and mercy and justice. Look at the ways that we are helping to fuel the global church in places where people are being baptized left and right. Yeah, but what I love about this church, this is a house of prayer. And prayer is one, you just, you can't quantify it on some metrics dashboard the way that you can adult baptisms. Yeah, but everybody I know in Dallas is already Christian. Yeah, but don't make the church about numbers. Like why we always got to talk about numbers? Lots of yeah buts. And yet, and yet, I can't help but wonder why isn't that happening more often? Why, why aren't more people saying yes to new life in Jesus and for the first time in our midst. We're in a series based on this prayer from Ephesians 3 where Paul says this, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Wide, long, high, and deep, these four dimensions of God's love. And we're gonna walk through these over the next few weeks. Last week, we looked at how wide is the love of Christ. And today we ask, how how long is his love? How far will Jesus go to seek and save the lost? And I wanna try to answer that question from scripture in a few ways. But the last one, if I had to pick one, the last one is the best. First answer to that question, how long? If you flip to the last book in the Bible, this is the, we're given this glimpse into the end of the story that God is writing. And, and what we see is a multitude in heaven from every tribe and language and people and nation, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. God's love will extend to all people of all races 
and all nations and all places. And those of you who've been around this church longer than I have, you know that this is so grafted into the DNA of this Highland Park Church. We are part of a global church and our prayer is God open our eyes to see you at work around the world. That if God's love extends to the ends of of the earth, then so should ours. Just scrolling through the world section of the news this week, um, a few days ago there was a a mob that attacked attacked a group of eight churches in Pakistan and set them on fire, started burning homes, and all of this because two young Christians were accused, not convicted, accused of insulting Islam. Then there's growing ethnic violence that we're reading about against Christians in places like India and Indonesia and mounting pressure from the government against churches in China. And you can just ask our pastor, Ben Wong, about that. And they need our prayers and our friendship and our hearts need to break for the things that break the heart of our God. And I'm grateful that we have extensions of this body who are serving as missionaries in places like North Africa and friends who are training Christian leaders in Iran. God's love extends to the end of the earth and so should ours. So that's one way to answer this question. How long is God's love? Another way is less in terms of the length of his reach and more the the duration of his commitment. That God is in this for the long haul. God delights in making long-term commitments called covenants. What is a covenant? It's a bond of belonging in which God shows his faithfulness, in which he says, I will not give up on you. I am true to my word. And when God makes a promise, he is faithful to keep it. And so another way of answering this, how long is God's love? It's as long as eternity. God's love for you will outlast eternity, stretching in time farther than you could imagine and lasting longer than you could ever dream. How long is God's love? It's long enough that you cannot hide from him. Wherever you go, he will find you. Our six-year-old daughter, Collier Jane, is, is kind of in the midst of the hide-and-seek phase, and she just loves playing this game. Uh, this summer, we were out at Grandma's house in Atlanta, and there were all kinds of, she's got all kinds of closets and basements and attics and just really great places to hide. So um, for this particular game, I was the hider, CJ was the seeker, and I found a room in the house that was really hard to, I mean, this was a great, this was a great hiding spot. And Collier Jane was just looking all over the house and, um, and in the room that I was hiding in, there was a bed. And so I took a nap and she never found me. And CJ doesn't ask me to play hide and seek or hide and sleep with her anymore. Well, check this out in Psalm 131. Psalm 139, it's like this whimsical game of hide and seek with God. Look at this language. Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. How long is God's love? It is so long that there's no use hiding. There is no length he will not go to find you. But I think the greatest answer to this question comes from the greatest storyteller and what I think is the best story he ever told. Martin Luther once called this the gospel within the gospel. Here's how it begins, Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and the sinners 
and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And if you were here last week, we looked at how Zacchaeus, one of these so-called sinners, Jesus basically invites himself over to dinner at Zacchaeus's house and the religious leaders, they were so mad about this. So he, Jesus, told them a parable. So just to be clear, who is the them? It's the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus did not tell this story to the crowds. This was not like the Sermon on the Mount. This was for a specific people. So who are the Pharisees and the scribes? First, the Pharisees. These were basically the ultra committed uh, uh, church leaders of their day. These were the elders and the deacon. Do we have any elders and deacons here this morning? We got a few. I know today we're um, ordaining new elders and deacons. I'm a big fan of our church officers. I just want you to know that this is not meant to be, a, you know, a slam against them. But the Pharisees in that day, these were the most committed church leaders, the Sunday school teachers and the committee moderators. And they were always there. They were committed to faithfulness, obedience. Most of all, their greatest passion was the holiness of God. Then you have the scribes who were the professional theologians of that day. These were the seminary professors, the denomination officials, throw in a few pastors, and they were entrusted with the teaching and the preservation of God's word. And here's the thing, the Pharisees and the scribes, they kind of make an easy punching bag, right? It's easy to hate on them as judgmental and pious and better than with their attitude. I mean, if somebody says to you, hey, you're being a little bit pharisaical here, you don't say thank you. Like it's not meant as a compliment, but let's not dismiss them too quickly because they were motivated by good things. They were passionate about the holiness of God. And yet you see somewhere, how somewhere along the way in that hunger for, for holiness, they, they began to lose sight of love. And so Jesus tells them a story. It's about a young man who just wants out, a son who's made up his mind that he would rather live apart from his father, apart from all the burdens of life at home. He's tired of doing what the father tells him to do, following the father's rules. And so one day he goes to his dad and here's what he says, father, give me my share of the estate. Now let's talk about what this meant to the Pharisees and the scribes who first heard this story. A guy named Ken Bailey, spent his entire life as um, a student of this parable living in the Middle East. And he has told this story to thousands of people in remote villages throughout the Middle East where, where you still see some of these cultural norms of the ancient world. He would tell the story and the way that it begins. And then he would ask them, has anyone, has any son ever made a request like this in your village? Never. No one has ever heard of a son doing this. And then Bailey would ask them, well, if anybody ever did, what would happen? And he always got the same answer. His father would beat him. Why? Because it means that he wants his father to die. Basically, the son in this story is saying, dad, you're not dying fast enough for me. So just go ahead and give me my money and get out of my life. Well, imagine how Jesus' listeners reacted when the father says in the story, Okay, son, if that's what you really want. And he calls his lawyer and he draws up papers and he quietly transfers to his son ownership of, the, uh, of a portion of his estate. For a second son, it would have been a third of the estate. Now, like many of you, I'm sure in a room this big, I have heard this story. I have, 
um, read this story or preached this story so many times, but the wonder of scripture is it continues to teach. It continues to speak. And I'd never thought about this before, but at this point in the story, it's kind of possible for the family and for the father to keep their drama rather private, maybe limit or contain the damage. But then we read in the very next verse, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. And technically what that meant is he liquidated his holdings, which meant selling what? Land. Land that had been in the family for generations, which meant now the secret's out. You don't hide a for sale sign like that in a small town. And so now not only is the son shamed, but his father is now shamed before the entire community. What kind of dad would allow his son to trash his legacy like that? What a, what a shame, they'd say. Notice also how quickly it happens. Not long after that, he liquidated his assets. Sin is always in a hurry, isn't it? It's like, I better do this and I better do it quick. Sin is always in a hurry. But the son also has to leave town quickly in order to avoid the rage of the people in his village. And he has to go far away where nobody knows what he's done. So the son takes off, we're told, to a far country. And if you look at the original Greek there, the definition of that word far country is a place where what happens in the far country stays in the far country. And then we're told in verse 13 that he squandered his wealth in wild living. And you can just... Use your imagination. Mike Tyson shows up, whatever the scene. It's just, it's wild living. Well, after a while, the younger son hits a wall. Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. You spend enough time in the far country, eventually you're gonna find yourself in need. And some of us have been there. The money's gone which means there's no more penthouse, no more parties, no more spending spree, no more quote unquote friends who seem to like to be around me as long as they can spend my money. No more of the distractions that he relied on to self-medicate. It's all gone. And then to make matters worse, a famine strikes. Sometimes a famine in a far country is a gift from God because the famine wakes us up. Things get so bad, we're told that the younger son went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Now, this is, this is a loaded verse. When it says the younger son hired himself out to a citizen of that country, implication being this was a Gentile, a foreigner. The word used here is literally he glued himself. He is so desperate that he wraps his arms around the robe of this unclean Gentile and he begs and he won't let go and he glued himself and he said, please give me a job. I'm begging, I'll take any job. Well, the Gentile knows that the, the one job that he can offer this young Jewish man that he can't possibly accept is what? A job with pigs, an animal that the Jewish people viewed as so unclean they couldn't even look at one. They were considered so unclean. And, and yet the son here is so desperate that he takes the job, the most disgusting, shameful thing that he could ever do, working for a Gentile, feeding pigs, longing just to eat the trash. That is the food of the pigs. Now, just to pause here again, remember, who is Jesus telling the story to? It's the Pharisees and the scribes. Imagine how, offended these religious leaders are 
gathered around Jesus, just taking it in, hearing this story. Their jaws are on the ground. It is so inappropriate and it's hard for us to fathom. And yet nothing holds a candle to what's about to happen next. The prodigal son hits rock bottom and and it is there at the end of his rope, no hope that he remembers. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, isn't that a fascinating phrase? When he came to himself, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger. I will rise and go to my father. So homeless, broke, feeding the pigs, the son comes to his senses and he remembers his father. And see, what what matters here is not that the son finally sees his own badness. It's that he remembers the father's goodness. He remembers how long is the father's love. And so he decides to make the journey back home. And there's so much more to this story, but here's the moment I want us to hold on to. How long is God's love? Here's how long. The son resolves to make the long journey home. But while he was still a long ways off, the father saw him. The father saw him and comes running toward him. It's as if the whole time his son who ran away from him, his son who trashed his father's name, his son who wanted him dead, the whole time the father has been waiting, watching the road, hoping that one day this might be the day when my son might remember my goodness and come back home. The father sees his son from a distance and we're told that he runs to him and he embraces him and he kisses him and he forgives him and he says, come back home, come celebrate with me and work with me and lead with me because you are family. You are not a slave. You are not a servant. You are my son. And maybe there's somebody here today who feels a little bit like the choices that I've made and the path that I've taken, I'm kind of beyond the reach of God's love. And maybe there are bridges that you have burned and people you have hurt and the shame and the regret you carry. And I want you to hear this. As far as you may go, he still loves you and his arms can still reach to you. And there is no place he will not run to embrace you and to welcome you home. Or maybe you're in the camp that you've been praying for somebody that you love for a long time, a friend, a brother, a parent, and you have been praying for years, for decades, that they would come home or they would come back into the Father's love. I think about somebody that God placed in my life over 20 years ago, and I I love this man so much. And for more than 20 years, I have prayed that he would come to his senses and he would remember the goodness of the Father, and it hasn't happened, and sometimes it feels like his heart is colder than ever to God. And in those moments, I I, I choose to remember, God, you haven't given up, so neither will I. God never gives up. In a moment, we're gonna pray and respond in song, and maybe for some of us in this room, this could be a really important moment. And you might find yourself saying or thinking or praying, God, I, I have been running from you for so long and I'm ready to come home. Or you have been praying for that person that you love for so long and, and this is a chance for you to hear from God, don't give up, don't give up because I haven't given up. And before we pray, I'm gonna close with this. 
when the younger son decides to head home, uh, like many recalcitrant uh, kids, he prepares a speech. And he works on this speech, on the long journey home. This speech, like any good Presbyterian speech, it has three parts. Three parts to the son's speech. One, Father, I have sinned. I am not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. Three parts. And he practiced this speech all the way home. Sure enough, when the son is is embraced by his father, he has the courage to say the words. And the father lets him say the first part of the speech. I have sinned. I have wronged you. The father lets him say that because confession is redemptive. And then he gets to the second part and he says, Father, I'm not, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. And the father lets him say that because admitting a broken relationship, isn't that the first step toward reconciliation? And then the son, in the embrace of his father's arms, he takes a long, deep breath to say part three. Remember what that was? Make me like a servant. And the son takes a deep breath. He's looking at his dad. And as he's about to say it, before he can even get the words out of his mouth, the father cuts him off. And friends, that interruption is the gospel. The father will not let his son say those words. He will not let his son be a servant because we can never earn our way back to God. Never, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've run, God will never let you earn your way back. All you can do is come home. All you can do is receive. It's just grace. It's a gift that cost him the life of his son. His love is long. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this story. And thank you that you know how much we need to learn the Father's heart for us. And I pray that as as we find ourselves in that story, as we find hope to, to not give up on those that you haven't given up on, that you would continue to lead us. And maybe for some of us that we would be more and more open to knowing that you are watching and you cannot wait to run and embrace us and welcome us home. In Jesus' name.